This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 14. We've been away from the Gospel of John for a couple of weeks. We return tonight, picking up where we left off in the middle of chapter 14. We'll pick up at verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter at verse 31. John 14, verses 15 through 31. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At the day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts to receive it by your Holy Spirit. We would understand the realities of the Holy Spirit who is promised to us here in this text by our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we may understand who he is and what he has done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, this morning we partook of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed, this same night we are looking at here in John. The night of his arrest and the night before he would be crucified. We have spent some time recently in this series in John. We still have a little ways to go looking at Jesus' final words, his final teachings to his disciples before his suffering and death. Now, one of the things that the Lord's Supper, as we took it this morning, reminds us of is that as far as it goes in his body, Christ is absent from us. When we partake, we are invited into heaven to commune with him, but he remains there. He has ascended into heaven and he is at the right hand of the Father, and there he will be until he comes again. So what happens to us now that Christ has gone into heaven? Has he left us alone? Are we just on our own? Well, we learn in our text tonight that Christ has not left us alone. For on that night he was betrayed, his disciples would have been very concerned that Jesus was about to leave them alone. It was all this talk of his death, all this talk of his departure, his going into heaven to prepare a place for them. What was going to happen if Jesus did not come back quickly? At least by our human terms, Jesus did not come back quickly. All those disciples died before they saw his return. For 2,000 years now, the saints have lived and died, and Christ remains in heaven. He has not yet returned to take his people to himself. And yet even on the eve of his departure, with the news of his departure weighing heavily on his disciples, Jesus teaches concerning a helper who will come to them after he leaves. That helper is none other than the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God who now dwells in his people and in his church. So we will look at Jesus' teaching concerning this helper in three points tonight. First, the helper declared in verses 15 through 18. Jesus tells the disciples that once he departs, the Holy Spirit is coming to aid them. Second, the helper's dwelling. In verses 19 through 24, the Spirit will remain with and continually dwell in Christ's people in their sojourn on this earth. And the Father and Son will dwell in their people by the Spirit. And third, we see the helpers doing in verses 25 through 31. The Spirit comes in power, comes to do work, comes to accomplish God's purposes on the earth. So again, we have the helper declared the helper's dwelling, and the helper's doing. So first we look at the helper declared in verses 15 through 18. Now Jesus has just spoken great words of comfort even in the great hour of trial that is upon him and his disciples. He told them about the place that he was going to prepare for them, in the house of God, in the presence of the Father. He told them about how he was the revelation of the Father and how after he was gone, they would do greater works than even he did. But how can this all be? Well, Jesus has hinted at this helper before, but now he makes a clear revelation starting in verse 15. Now, the first thing he says is an ethical exhortation. If you love me, 
keep my commandments. We see here something typical of biblical teaching. Love is grounded in law. Love is not grounded in how we feel, what we want subjectively, but it is grounded in the law of God, how he has commanded his people to love him and to love neighbor. If we love God, we will strive with earnest sincerity to keep his commands. Even the unpopular ones, even the ones that get criticized and ignored frequently in our day. Of course, we recognize that on our own power, we cannot keep God's commands. And that's why this statement logically connects to what comes next. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. Now, Jesus has to this point been his disciples' helper and comforter. He has been with them. He has taught them. He has helped them. He has encouraged them, and they have loved him. But he's about to leave. He's about to depart. And yet here he promises he will send another helper, another comforter, one who is like him, one who is also God. The disciples will have help from God in what is to come. Help to do the greater works that are to come. Help to know and understand and believe the truth of God's word. And how Christ is the revelation of God. And they will have a helper to love God and to keep his commandments. These are the works of the Holy Spirit. This is what he anoints and empowers believers to do. Now, there is much distortion and confusion concerning what the Holy Spirit does. In the last century or so, Pentecostalism has exploded in America with beliefs that Christians can and should and will practice the apostolic gifts, miracles, healing, speaking in tongues, prophecy, and so forth. Now, these gifts, they were particular to the apostolic age. They were to validate the word of God given through the apostles. They were to validate their preaching and to validate the establishment of the church. Within a few decades, those gifts ceased from ordinary use. And the way the supposed practitioners of these gifts use them now, it doesn't even keep with the biblical evidence for how they were supposed to be used. For instance, tongues. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they were clearly real languages that people understood. They were just languages that the people using them didn't know, didn't know they knew. They were given the knowledge of them by supernatural ability. Tongues, as they're practiced now in Pentecostal circles, they're typically gibberish. When I was in college, I attended an Assembly of God church for a while. It was a different time in my life. Every Sunday, a woman would have a message in tongues. It wasn't a language, it was nonsense. But then she would proceed to interpret it herself. Never mind that even when the Bible talked about tongues, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it said, another interprets. Oh, by the way, that woman was the pastor's wife. It was all just rather convenient. Now, the biblical standard for prophecy is that a true prophet never prophesies falsely. 
Yet those who claim the gift of prophecy now get things wrong all the time. God still heals people according to his will, but so-called faith healers fail to deliver the healing power they claim to have. And while they're doing this, they're the ones that get on TV and fleece the sick and the old for money when not actually healing anything. When I was a kid, our church for a time had a pastor who thought he had the gift of healing. And he held a healing service. Now I had a chronic hip problem. I had a bone cyst that hollowed out my right femur, caused it to break once, and it took three surgeries to ultimately repair. I believe it was between my second and third surgery, so that should tell you where this is going. The pastor had that healing service. And my mom, she was well-intended. She wanted me to go forward and get healed, so I went forward. Now, the pastor immediately noticed that there was a slight difference in the length of my legs. He prayed while obviously pulling and stretching on my right leg, the one with the problems. And then at the end said that my legs were the same length, and he declared me healed. He literally pulled my leg. Well, at my next doctor's appointment, they took x-rays, and x-rays were more honest. It turns out all the problems were still there. This is actually not the only time I've heard of this. This is a common tactic of faith healers, so-called, to do this leg-pulling trick. There's many televangelists and other prominent figures that they will do this exact thing. And it's total charlatanry. It's blasphemous. It's taking the Lord's name in vain, claiming that God is doing something, claiming that God has done something by the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet it's fraud. It's false. So these are things that people think the Holy Spirit does, but they think wrongly. What does the Holy Spirit do? The ordinary work of the Holy Spirit in God's people that continues now is to apply the truth of God's word to people to make it effectual unto salvation, to illuminate our fallen and sinful hearts and minds to understand the word and put it into practice. This is a miraculous and supernatural work. Apart from the Spirit's work, we would not be able to believe in God and his word. We would be able to do nothing towards our salvation, not even the most rudimentary of steps. But the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, enables us to receive and act upon God's truth. We see the contrast in what Jesus says about those who do not have the Spirit. He says they are the ones whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. The Spirit is God. He acts according to God's sovereignty. His dwelling and blessings and benefits are only applied to God's elect. Those who do not receive him do not and cannot know and do the things which the Spirit uniquely empowers. As John Calvin puts it, Christ's words show that nothing which relates to the Holy Spirit can be learned by human reason, but that he is known only by the experience of faith. Those whom God has chosen, those who are of his elect, those who receive the gift of faith, they know, they have, they receive the Holy Spirit. 
They know him personally. There's a tendency in our day to treat the Holy Spirit as some kind of impersonal and ethereal force. But the Holy Spirit, with the Father and the Son, is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit lives and speaks and dwells in his people. And he is God who lives with us even as the Father is in heaven and the Son has gone into heaven and will remain there until he returns. Jesus gives these words to his disciples as he is about to depart that he will not leave them as orphans. He will not leave them alone. Though he will be away, the Spirit will come to them and indwell them and empower them. So this brings us to our second point. After the helper declared, we come to the helper dwelling in verses 19 through 24. Jesus says in verse 19, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. So again, Jesus is bodily speaking going away. He'll be ascending into heaven. It is because he was incarnate, it is because he was a man dwelling on the earth, that his enemies in the lost and sinful world could see him for a time. Those who hated Jesus and those who wanted his message silenced were about to get their way, sort of. By the next night, Jesus would be dead. Problem being, Jesus would come back from the dead, and for another 40 days, he would walk the earth. But then he would ascend into heaven. Again, the world, those not belonging to Jesus, those not chosen by God, might think they had won again. They won't see Jesus anymore, and they think their problems with him will be gone. But then there comes the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit will be poured out on believers at Pentecost, and suddenly the name and person and work of Jesus will be more boldly declared than it was even when Jesus was on the earth. Jesus' people will continue to know him and commune with him by his word and by the Holy Spirit. It's not that we continue to see Jesus and that he continues to appear to us visibly or physically, but we see him in his word and his works, and he is present with us by his Spirit. That day, Jesus describes in verse 20, is not merely a single day, be it Resurrection Sunday or Pentecost or anything else, is a day that begins with that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but continues until the work on earth is done. We still live, we remain, in the day of the Holy Spirit. It is also by the Holy Spirit that God's people will have life. For as Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. Jesus will be raised from the dead. He will be the first fruits of the resurrection in which all of his people will share on the last day. This life is given. It is applied by the Spirit, by the Helper. It is the Spirit that allows the Word to be effective as it is proclaimed and read and heard. Jesus talks about this life belonging to those who have and keep his commandments. Now, this is not talking about salvation by works. But it is talking about loving and heeding God's law as the evidences, as the fruits of a living and active faith. 
Again, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, the work of sanctification. For apart from him, we could not and would not do it. We see that the love of God for his people who heed his word is Trinitarian. Those who love Jesus and keep his commandments also have the love of the Father. And they have this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that he will manifest himself to such people as these. Now this prompts a question from Judas, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, who, remember, has already departed into the night. But the other Judas, he wants to know how Jesus will manifest himself. Jesus responds with something similar to things we have heard him say before. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. But then he adds to it, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Though the father is in heaven and Jesus will be in heaven there is this promise of continued presence, of continued dwelling. Again, Jesus wants his people to be comforted that he is not going to leave them alone. Life in this world is going to be difficult. It was difficult for these disciples after Jesus departed. They faced many difficulties. They suffered many trials. Most of them died for their faith. We as Christians in this world may face trials and difficulties. We seek to continue to worship God, to reach others with the gospel, to live faithfully before the face of God in this world. Perhaps we can be tempted to believe the lie that as God's people in this evil and chaotic world, we have been left alone. We might believe that no one is here for us and no one is coming to help us. Do you ever feel alone like this? I have. But it is a lie. Because Jesus has promised that those who love him, those who heed his word, he and the Father together dwell in them. They live in us. They have made a home in us. They're not leaving by the word and by the spirit, they are never far from us. That is great comfort. In fact, that is our greatest comfort as those who belong to Christ in this world. Of course, not everyone has this. Verse 24 describes the other possible outcome. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Many do not love Jesus. Because they do not love Jesus, because they are not given faith, they do not keep his words. They live in rebellion and disobedience against him. Of course, many do this even while claiming to know God. Think of all the false religions that claim knowledge of God, might even claim knowledge of one God, a God who might in some ways seem similar to the God of the Bible manifest in Christ, but they don't believe in Jesus. Think of Islam. Think of continued Judaism. Think of Mormonism. Think of atheism and how atheists just deny God altogether or agnostics who just throw up their hands and say, oh, we don't really know. 
Well, I've lost count of how many times this truth has come up in John, but here it is once again. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. If you reject Jesus and his word, there is no life in you. And you have no knowledge of God, and you have no hope of life. Repent and believe and turn to Jesus. Turn to him while there is still yet time. Receive the gift of his Holy Spirit to dwell in you and comfort you in this life. This brings us to our final point. After the helper declared and the helper dwelling, we come to the helper doing in verses 25 through 31. Jesus now pivots to talk in more detail about the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been with his disciples, talking to them and teaching them face to face. But that is coming to an end. He will die. He will be raised, but he will ascend. But that is not the end of the teaching. In verse 26, Jesus says that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in Jesus' name, so to Jesus' people, will teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said to them. We've already talked about this a little bit before. The primary function of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers is belief in the word, the illumination and application of God's word for salvation and life. We've also seen this in John where John mentions that Jesus said something or did something. The disciples didn't understand it at the time, but that they did later after Jesus was glorified. This is because the Holy Spirit comes to them and even retroactively allows them to understand and also to record for us as scripture what Jesus said and did. Part of the Holy Spirit's work is the inspiration of scripture. It's generally believed that the Gospels probably weren't written until many years after Jesus' life. Some years, maybe even decades past. It's often said about John that he probably wrote this gospel as a very old man, probably around his 90s. But the Holy Spirit preserves Jesus' words and works in the minds and hearts of his followers so that they might be inerrantly and under divine inspiration recorded for us and kept even to this day. The Holy Spirit brings peace. Though Jesus is leaving, and perhaps his disciples thought that Jesus had brought peace to them, they receive a still greater peace to come. Now, they're not going to receive peace because life will be peaceful. Life will be, and even for us now, is often very chaotic. The disciples faced much opposition and difficulty. We face the struggles with sin and the flesh and the world and the devil and much of what we do as Christians. Peace doesn't mean peaceful. But the peace of God passes understanding. It means we can have peace, we can be at peace, even if our external circumstances do not naturally lend themselves to it. And that peace is a gift, is a work of the Holy Spirit in God's people. 
And it allows us to have the blessing of the end of verse 27. Let not your heart be troubled. It's the same words that open this chapter. Now, if you think about it long enough, you could probably come up with some reason for your heart to be troubled based on your current circumstances. But if you belong to Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you do not have to be given over to the troubling circumstances. You can have that peace that passes understanding because you have a hope and a confidence that passes all human understanding. You know that you belong to Christ and that he has died for you and you have this divine helper, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in you and comforting you and speaking the truth to you. And so ultimately, man can do nothing to you. In Christ, his people do not have to be afraid. Again, we could think of things to be afraid of. Go watch or read the news for 30 seconds. You'll probably get something. Look in your bank account. Maybe there's something there to be afraid of. Look at the struggles and uncertainty that you or others you love face. Again, there's lots of reasons to be afraid if we want to be. But because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we do not have to be afraid. And we are comforted and strengthened and encouraged not to be afraid. Because we know whose we are. We know we belong to Christ. We know that no one can snatch us out of his hand. And his spirit dwells in us to continually comfort us. But finally, Jesus offers a minor rebuke in verse 28. He points out that his disciples have not been pleased to hear of his departure. They should be rejoicing for Jesus because he will be glorified. He will conquer death and hell and live and reign again in the presence of the Father. Now, it's not as though they don't love Christ at all, but they don't love him rightly. They don't love him as they should because their love, as with all of the love of fallen sinful humans, was mixed with some of their selfish desire. They do not love Christ as they should because they do not have the illumination of the Holy Spirit so that they might understand what Jesus' departure meant, how it was better even that he would go so that they might receive the helper he promised. Jesus has now told them these things. They may not understand now, but once Jesus' words have been fulfilled, once they receive the Holy Spirit, they do know and understand what Jesus meant, what he has said and what he has done. The time of hearing Jesus speak is nearly done. Just a short time from this passage, Jesus would be arrested and tried and crucified. And this is the work of the ruler of the world, the work of Satan. And yet God is using it to be most glorified. Christ will accomplish the redemption of the world through the evil acts of evil men. The time is near. But Jesus concludes this passage by telling his disciples even that it's time to go. He'll teach them for a few more chapters, but his departure is imminent. It's right around the corner. What we have seen tonight is this gift, this blessing of the Holy Spirit. We have seen his power, the comfort he gives us as he teaches and applies the truth of God's word to us. This would have been words of comfort to Christ's disciples that night as they were facing all the trouble to come. 
and it is also comfort to us. In this world, we have troubles, but God is with us. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in us. So the question for you tonight is, do you have God's gift, and do you have this comfort and this comforter? The Holy Spirit is the portion of Christ's people. Perhaps tonight he speaks to you, he illuminates the truth of the gospel to you, and you understand that you are a sinner. Yet the sinless Christ suffered and died for you, and was raised from the dead and has ascended to the Father. Through faith in him, you can be saved. By repenting of your sins and believing in him, you can have eternal life and the comfort of the Holy Spirit even now. Do you have that comfort? Do you want that comfort? Because by the word of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit, you can have that comfort tonight. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you for the comfort that we receive by your word as it is applied by your Holy Spirit who lives with and dwells in your people. We thank you for this greatest of gifts you have given us. We thank you that the Spirit is with us and will be with us until the end. We thank you that you have not left us alone. We thank you that you have gone to prepare a place for us and that you will return one day for your children. But until then, I pray that we would be faithful to love you and serve you, empowered by your Holy Spirit to do the task. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.